So, as soon as I got back, I, you, know, you kind of jump back into the whole routine of life, and I went to the dentist earlier this week. How many people like going to the dentist? Yeah, it wasn't even the dentist, it was the oral surgeon. Yeah, I know, uh, because I was getting ready for my third round of oral surgery. That's in a few weeks. He said, this one's going to hurt. <laughs> The last two hurt, okay, so I'm worried about this one. It's a fix, a pesky gum issue, not a big, big deal. But anyway, as I was on my way out of the office, I said something kind to the woman at the front desk. Her name is Paula. And I said something kind to her because, well, number one, she is awesome. And number two, I like to be the person who never complains. I like to be the person who says encouraging things to people everywhere I go. Because Boca already has enough grouchy complainers, and I don't need to add to their number. And anyway, that's not our calling as followers of Jesus. Anyway, after I told her how awesome she was, she said to me, Oh, you're such a good person. And, and yes, that was flattering. But I said to her, Well, you only think that because you don't really know me. You know, I get that a lot, and it's weird. A lot of people think I'm a better person than I am because I'm a pastor. And, and at least for people who don't immediately hate all religious people, and that number is growing bigger and bigger by the day, but, but people hear I'm a pastor, most people assume that I am more holy than other people are. Now, if you tend to think that way about me, please don't. Okay, you promise? Don't. Because I am no different than anyone else. I am a sinner saved by God's grace. We're all just beggars telling other beggars where we found bread, as a friend of mine likes to say. And as such, we all have moments in our past that are so embarrassing that we've spent a lifetime trying to forget them, a lifetime trying to move past them. When I was a teenager, my friends and I hung out in Miami's Coconut Grove. I grew up in Miami as you guys know, we hung out there Friday and Saturday nights. Quite frankly, I can't believe my parents let us do this. And my parents are not here today. They're watching. So I can't believe you let me do that. We'd go to the Grove Friday and Saturday nights, and we would watch the midnight showing every week of the Rocky Horror Picture Show at the Grove Cinema. Please note, this is not, I repeat, not a pastoral movie recommendation. A, it's old and you won't like it anyway, and B, it is, I didn't even realize that it would be inappropriate back then, but boy, I don't like it now. But anyway, if you're familiar with the movie at all, you're likely familiar with the fact that it was the custom for the audience to dress up as a character and then act out various scenes and verbally respond to various lines throughout the movie. Now, it's pretty funny to watch the audience act out and dance and do crazy stuff. And it was a blast to be a part of, which is probably why I went to the movie. It's got to be more than 20 times. I, mean, I just kept seeing that movie over and over. And it's not like you watch it on television. You had to get in the car. You had to go to Coconut Grove. You had to pay for the ticket. I mean, it was a big thing. Anyway, on one particular occasion, I was a little too over-enthusiastic in my participation. On that evening, I was louder than usual. And I was more boisterous than usual. And I was more, and I know you're going to find this hard to believe, obnoxious than usual. Yeah, I know. So much so that the people around me complained to the manager. 
And when the manager asked me to tone it down, I took great offense. So in a very loud and aggressive manner, I told the manager exactly what he could do with his advice. That was not the right thing to do. And if you are a young person here with us today, if you're an impressionable student listening to me, please don't think that was funny of me or cool of me. It wasn't. It was horrible of me. But I was a kid. I didn't realize it. Even when the city of Miami police officer who was working security at the theater that evening was removing me from the premises, I screamed, how dare you kick me out of here? Do you know who I am? I am the president of my high school. I am an honors student. You don't know who you're messing with. Unbelievable as it is, they were not impressed. <laughs> and as they led me out of the building, they told me that if I tried to get back in, I would be arrested. So I sat down on the sidewalk in front of the theater, and I waited for my friends to come out at the end, which was around 2 a.m., so they could take me home. I was so embarrassed. And I'm pretty sure that I never told my parents about it. Ooh, sorry, Mom, Dad, um, if you're watching, surprise, <laughs> so that happened. And to that day, to this day, the, the thought of that evening still embarrasses me when I think about it. Even though now I can laugh about it and tell it to a group of people at church. And that's just one silly example. But we all also have things in our past that aren't just embarrassing. But they're so humiliating and so shameful that we not only don't laugh about it, but we try to block it. And we never, ever, ever deign to speak of it. In fact, we wish that we could go back in time and unlive it or, or redo it. Well, in today's message, we're going to see that our old friend Peter also had one of those moments. And we know that because he told us about it. And the reason he told us about it is because, number one, it actually happened. And number two, he wanted us to know that there's a place available to us that we can take these things and leave these things forever. There's a place where we can take the shameful and painful moments in our past and safely discard them for good. Peter wanted us to know that our past may always remind us but it does not have to define us. And if you're carrying around some shameful and some painful things from your past, I am so happy that you're here with us today. So welcome to part seven in the final installment of our series, You're Not Far. In this series, we've been looking at the story of Jesus as told to us by John Mark, who got the story from Peter. Mark recorded it in the gospel we know of as the gospel of Mark. And in Mark's gospel, Peter told us that when Jesus began to preach and teach, he had a theme that he returned to over and over again. And the theme, which you've seen, was this, the kingdom of God has come near. The kingdom of God has come near, which means that you're not very far. And the appropriate response to the kingdom of God coming near is to repent and believe the good news. And the good news in this instant, which we've looked at, 
that Jesus preached over and over again was that Jesus came to earth so that we could personally experience God. As Jesus said, which is reported in John's gospel, in John chapter 14, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Making the message of Jesus this, we know this one, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life and anyone who has seen me, Jesus has seen the Father. Jesus came to guarantee his people eternal life connected to the Father and to reveal the Father to us. So let's pray and we'll jump in. Father, thank you for this message. Thank you for your word Thank you for preserving it so faithfully so today we can use it and imbibe it and make it a part of our lives. We love you, God, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So previously on You're Not Far, Jesus and his disciples made their way from Caesarea Philippi up in the north, down through the Galilee, and then into Judea, where they arrived at the holy city of Jerusalem. We looked at Jesus' week in Jerusalem, where he pulled out all the stops and began to reveal his ultimate purpose. And as we've discussed, the disciples were thinking that, okay, once we get to Jerusalem, we'll begin to drum up support for Jesus. So he can finally be hailed as, as the new king and finally drive out those pesky Romans from their midst. But as we saw, Jesus instead went to the temple day after day and antagonized the religious leaders, which caused them to try over and over again to trap Jesus and to discredit Jesus, only to be humiliated by him with their own words. And then on that Thursday night of the week, Jesus gathered with the 12 in the upper room, as we just talked about, for the Passover meal. And it's a safe bet to imagine that the disciples assumed that that was going to be the moment. That was going to be the big reveal the time when Jesus was going to announce himself as Messiah and establish himself as king. And indeed, there was a big reveal. But it wasn't exactly as they expected. As we talked about the last time, the big reveal at the Passover meal was that Jesus took the bread and after he'd given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. And then he said the strangest thing to them. He said, take it. This is my body. And they went, huh? And then the same way he took the cup, and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them, and after they all drank from it, he said, this is my blood, the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. He announced a new covenant, a new covenant between God and everybody. And they were likely thinking, all right, sure, a covenant, which is totally cool. But what about a kingdom? We thought you were a king. Are you saying that there won't be a kingdom? And after that, they left the upper room, and they proceeded to the Garden of Gethsemane, where the disciple Judas showed up, along with the temple guard who arrested Jesus. And then Peter told us that when Jesus was arrested, everybody, including Peter himself, deserted Jesus and fled. And if you're tracking, you get that. Because to them, they'd spent three years. They thought it was going to end a different way, but it was over. They figured that Jesus just wasn't a king. And obviously, he wasn't going to establish a kingdom. In that moment, it seemed clear, notwithstanding everything that he'd been saying, the kingdom of God just wasn't near. And God certainly wasn't near. Well, here's what actually happened next. 
Peter went into specific detail about Jesus' trials and his interactions with the Jewish courts. Now, I've been reading that for years and years, and if you're anything like me, you've read that too, and you often wondered, how did Peter know those details? He wasn't in the room. Mark wasn't in the room. None of them were in the room with Jesus in those tribunals. How could he know what the Pharisees and what the teachers of the law said to him? Well, the answer is not only logical, but it's pretty cool. Because later on, remember, this is written about 30 years after the crucifixion. Later on, some of those religious leaders who were in the room during Jesus' trials became Jesus' followers too. You can read about them throughout the Bible in the book of Acts, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And if you're now thinking, well, how did that happen? How did the same men who were responsible for having Jesus arrested, brutalized, tried, and ultimately convicted and crucified, how did those people become followers of Jesus? We need only look at the accounts that we typically discuss around Easter to see it. And though we're not going to spend much time on those accounts today, here's one example of what I'm talking about. You guys remember the name Joseph of Arimathea? Remember who he was? We read in Mark 15, 43, he was a prominent member of the council who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God. Now, Joseph was there at the trial, but he was not in favor of Jesus' persecution or punishment because he too believed that Jesus could have been and probably was the promised Messiah. And when Jesus died, Joseph of Arimathea took it upon himself to go directly to Governor Pilate and recover Jesus' body for burial. This was very unorthodox. But after the resurrection, Joseph was all in. So that's one of the ways we know what took place at the trial. Anyway, back to our story. After they arrested Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, they brought him to the high priest, along with all the chief priests and elders and teachers of the law. Now, it's interesting. Those groups didn't like each other. They never had gotten along before, but they found common cause in removing Jesus from the scene. So we turn to Mark chapter 14, verse 53. They took Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests, the elders and teachers of the law, came together and Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. So now I want you to think about this. Peter is telling this story to Mark, and Peter decides to include this little factoid that while his rabbi, Jesus, was being thrown to the wolves, he hung back and chilled with the guards, warming himself around the toasty fire. You have to wonder whether Mark asked, hey, Pete, are you sure you want to include this part? It kind of makes you look insensitive. But as Peter hadn't held back on any of the other facts up until this point, he kept it there. Maybe saying, look, they need to know I'm no hero. I lost faith just like everyone else. Because frankly, there were no heroes that night. Verse 55. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so they could find, so they could put him to death. But they did not find any. Verse 56, maybe they many testified falsely against him. But their statements did not agree. They brought in a bunch of witnesses to this trial. Many of them were just making stuff up about Jesus. To the point where their false statements weren't even consistent with each other. They didn't even get together and get their testimony straight. 
But Jesus didn't address the lies. And it wasn't too long before the high priest lost his patience with Jesus. And he decided to get aggressive. And he got all up in Jesus' grill. And he asked him, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. And that drove the religious leaders bonkers. Think about it. These were the most powerful men in the holy city. These were the most powerful men in all of Judea. They were used to people showing them respect, showing them the utmost deference wherever they went. But then they encountered this Nazarene tradesman who, who not only refused to show them respect and deference to which they'd become accustomed, but also destroyed all of their positions. And now he refused to answer their questions. So one more time, the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? Now, this was one of, the, one of those seminal moments in human history because Jesus' answer to this question would determine his destiny. And in fact, Jesus' answer to this question would determine all of our destinies. And Jesus answered, I am. And with that, Jesus sealed his fate, and the high priest tore his clothes. You ever stop and wonder why he did that? Why did the high priest tear his clothes? Was he about to turn into the Incredible Hulk, like that? That'd be cool, but no, that's not, not what it was. It actually comes out of the Old Testament in 1 Kings chapter 21. That the Hebrew practice is called Kriah. And in Jewish culture, when one is facing an unpleasant situation, such as the death of a loved one, it's customary to tear one's clothes. Nowadays, when there's a Jewish funeral, you'll, you'll notice people wearing a black ribbon that has a tear in it. That's the symbolic tearing of the clothes. That's where that comes from. And you can see its origin when the Lord pronounced through the prophet Elijah that the Lord would wipe out the descendants and male subjects of the evil king Ahab which caused Ahab, in his very first act of humility, to do what? To tear his clothes, put on sackcloth, and fast, which in turn caused the Lord to take a beat, to postpone his punishment to the next generation. Don't worry, that's not going to be on the quiz. But anyway, upon hearing Jesus' answer, I am, which, by the way, incidentally, could have been considered blasphemous in and of itself, because saying, I am, mirrored the same answer that God gave Moses when Moses asked for God's name. Remember what God said? This is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. The high priest continued in his outrage in Mark 14, 63. Why do we need any more witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists. We don't know how long this went on, but we can guess that it went on for quite some time. The religious leaders were taking out on Jesus all of the anger, all of the rage, and all of the frustration that they'd felt toward him because they had been utterly humiliated by him at every previous encounter. And as they beat him, they mocked him and tormented him, and they demanded that he prophesy in the midst of this brutal assault. And then the guards stepped in and took Jesus, and they beat him as well. And then Peter moved on to the next part of the story, the part of the story that they all needed to hear, the part of the story that we all need to hear. 
because it was the part of the story that shows us just how far and wide the grace and mercy of our Heavenly Father is. Because Jesus came not only to reveal God to us, but to show us that Jesus was, Jesus is God. The mercy and grace shown that day by Peter's rabbi Jesus is the same mercy and grace that we receive from Peter's rabbi, from our rabbi, from our teacher, Jesus. You see, what Peter did next was not only unexpected, but was also unthinkable. While Jesus was being interrogated and abused and beaten, Peter did nothing. Actually, Peter did worse than nothing. Peter sat back and warmed himself by the fire. Well, Mark continues, while Peter was sitting there all comfy and cozy, warming himself by the fire, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. And when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. And when she got a good look at him, she recognized him, and she said, Hey, you also were with that Nazarene Jesus. Hey, don't I know you? You're a friend of that Jesus guy, aren't you? But instead of standing up for his friend, his rabbi, his leader, Peter lied. Peter denied it. And then he tried to run away from that pesky little girl. Because middle school girls can be very intimidating. But the girl didn't give up that easily. And again, she said, I'm telling you, this fellow is one of them. But again, Peter denied it. By that time, people around the fire began to stare at Peter. And then after hearing his accent, Galileans had a very distinct accent compared to people in Jerusalem, they said to him, surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. And Peter responded to them with cursing and with more lies. I don't know this man that you're talking about. And at that moment, a rooster crowed the second time, just as Jesus had said it would. And with that, the tough guy, the man's man, Peter, broke down and wept. Peter would have given anything to go back and undo, to go back and redo this moment. Like the moments in our past that we'd prefer to pretend never happened, Whenever Peter thought of it, he felt sick to his stomach. After this, they led Jesus to Pilate. And as you may recall, the reason that they had to take Jesus to Pilate was because the Jews didn't have the authority to kill anyone, to execute anyone. That was in the Romans' purview. So the Jewish leaders swallowed their pride, and they brought Jesus to their Roman overlord. And when they were in front of Pilate, the chief priests accused Jesus of many things. So Pilate asked Jesus, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of? But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now, the reason Pilate was amazed by this was because what typically happened at a moment like this was that the accused would fall to his knees and beg for Pilate's mercy. Now, by the way, the accused wouldn't plead to be released. That, that wasn't an option. That wasn't going to happen. Rather, the, the accused would plead for a merciful death, for a quick death. But Jesus said nothing. But Pilate knew that Jesus hadn't done anything worthy of death. So he took Jesus 
had him flogged, probably hoping that flogging Jesus would satisfy, satisfy the bloodlust of the crowd. And maybe they would want to spare Jesus' life, but it didn't. So Pilate asked them, what shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? That was actually a dig because they didn't call Jesus the king of the Jews. He was well aware that the Jews did not consider Jesus their king. But by this point, the crowd had lost it. They were all caught up in a frenzy and they were screaming, crucify him, crucify him. And as you know, Pilate decided to give the crowd what they wanted. And the soldiers led Jesus away to the play, to the palace and called together the whole company of soldiers. Here's another interesting tidbit. The soldiers here were not Roman legions. They were not the official Roman soldiers. They weren't Roman citizens. History tells us that Pilate surrounded himself with Roman auxiliary soldiers. They were soldiers taken from the foreigners, from the surrounding regions, from the people who really hated the Judeans. And to them, the prospect of having a Judean king was absolutely abhorrent, which explains their excessive hatred for and violence that they inflicted upon Jesus. So what did they do? They put a purple robe on Jesus, then they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him, and they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they'd mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. And then they led him out to crucify him. And now we know in our minds what that meant to be crucified. But Peter's original audience really knew what that meant because they'd seen a crucifixion for themselves. They were familiar with what it looked like and what it sounded like, the screaming and the wailing and the crying. They were familiar with the smell of it all, the smell of decay, the smell of the blood. They were familiar with the aftermath of a crucifixion. They didn't need for Peter to give them any further detail. And whereas we almost glamorize it, I mean, think about it. Some of us were, were necklaces with a depiction of a crucifixion right on it. But they knew the truth. And if we'd have seen it, we'd have been mortified. Isn't that interesting? The moment when God would have been most glorified, we would have been most horrified. In that moment when God was doing for you and God was doing for me the unfathomable, we would have turned our faces away. We couldn't have even looked at it. But not so with the crowd. We continue. Those who passed by hurled insults at Jesus, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. And then they said something that was one of the most significant things ever uttered. And they had no idea they said it. Here's what they said. The chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked Jesus among themselves. He saved others, but he can't save himself. But 30 years later, as Peter was recounting this story to Mark, with the benefit of hindsight, Peter had a clue. Peter understood. Jesus's desire to save others was precisely why he didn't save himself. If Jesus had saved himself, he wouldn't have saved others. 
If Jesus had saved himself, he wouldn't have saved you, and he wouldn't have saved me. But they weren't there yet, so they continued with the taunting. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. That we may see and believe. In that moment, Peter, watching from afar, didn't understand just how significant those words were. But that which Peter would see three days later was why he continued to believe 30 years later. Yet in that moment, Peter saw it this way. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And then at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which is Aramaic, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, Peter didn't know the answer. But when Peter was dictating the story to Mark, he did. And in a letter he'd written a few years earlier, Peter explained everything to us. In 1 Peter 2, Peter said this, Jesus bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. On the cross, Jesus bore our sins in his body. While Jesus was on the cross, God placed Peter's sins. God placed our sins on Jesus. And in that moment, the father withdrew from the son so the father could draw near to us. The father drew near to us so that we would never be far from him. But in that moment, nobody understood it yet. And Jesus died alone. And with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. Later on, Peter would find out that when Jesus breathed his last, something remarkable happened. Because at that exact moment, verse 38, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. In that moment, the thick, heavy curtain that the Jews believed separated God from his people was rent, was torn in two. Something greater than the temple had come. Something greater than the Sabbath had come. Something greater than the prophets had come. From that moment on, there would be no more separation between God and his image bearers, man and woman. Jesus had alluded to at the Passover just a day before this covenant between God and the human race. And that it had been ratified. That it was a covenant for everyone, even for Peter, even for you, even for me. Peter saw it. And I hope that we can all see it too. Even though none of us deserve it, God did it for us anyway. In that moment, God gave us exactly that which we did not deserve. Let's take another look at how Peter described it in his earlier letter. In 1 Peter 2.24, Peter wrote, He himself, Jesus himself, bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Peter wrote that Jesus bore our sins in his body. And Peter learned this personally from his face-to-face experiences with the face-to-face forgiveness he received from his resurrected rabbi. And that very same forgiveness, that very same reconciliation, that very same restoration is available to us. This was truly good news. And this is why Jesus' message was so simple. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near, which means you are never far 
And I think Peter would tell us, if you'd seen what I saw, if you'd experienced what I experienced, you'd not hesitate, even for a moment, to repent and believe this good news. Not only that Jesus came to earth to die for your sins so that you could go to heaven, which he did, but also that Jesus came to earth to reveal what God the Father is like. Because once you get a glimpse of Jesus, you have seen the Father, and he is a good Father, and he is a reconciling Father, and he is a Father who says, I know your past may always remind you, but I need you to know that as far as I'm concerned, your past does not define you because of what my son did for you on the cross that day. And because of that, all of God's people can rejoice and say together, amen and amen. Won't you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for this message. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this text that has been preserved for us over all these thousands of years. Thank you for just showing us how clear it is that Jesus came and lived and died and rose from the dead for us to save us from our sin, to save us to salvation. And God, thank you that he's promised to return one day and establish his kingdom here on earth. God, we're humbled by the fact that you would call us and choose us. Allow us, God, to take your calling for us to go and be witnesses and make disciples, to take that to heart and to live the life that you've given us, the life that is life indeed. We love you, God. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name.